Hello, I'm Amy Stevenson, and this is The Human CEO. In each episode, we'll be meeting with CEOs and senior leaders to understand their approach to leadership, the challenges they faced, and how they overcame them. We'll also be asking what they feel it takes to be a great leader. I want to be a happy guy. I want to be surrounded by happy people. You know, that's way more fun than, than, you know, than being surrounded by stressed, miserable people who, you know, who are just kind of praying for 5 p.m. to arrive as quickly as possible. Welcome to The Human CEO. I'm your host, Amy Stevenson, and today I'm joined by Matthew Ware. Matthew's the Managing Director of CFL Courier Facilities Limited, an airside express cargo and courier freight company. Matthew joined the board of CFL in 2013 as the shareholder representative for FedEx Express. He was appointed Managing Director in January 2017. Matthew joins us today to tell us about his journey and share his insight as a leader on The Human CEO. Thank you for joining us today, Matthew. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, Amy. It's lovely to be here. I'm looking forward to speaking with you. So can you tell us a little bit about your organisation and what you're working towards? So CFL is, uh, we're a little bit of a unique proposition. Um, So we're a business that's been around for for nearly 40 years. And um, we're a customer-owned sort of industry utility would be the easiest way to describe it. So we're quite a small handling facility at Heathrow Airport. Um, but we're owned by a number of our customers, which include uh, DHL and FedEx and Virgin, uh, as well as a variety of quite small um, SME courier and sort of aviation businesses. And um, essentially, the business was founded uh, on the back of a kind of onboard courier shipments. Okay. So you can imagine Heathrow, the very ni- early 1980s, was just sort of starting to emerge as a, as a hub airport, mm-hmm. connecting uh, initially kind of principally old Commonwealth places like, um, you know, Hong Kong, India, uh, with New York and, and the rest of Europe. Uh, and um, courier companies in those days would uh, would put courier bags, you know, bags with, with uh, boxes in or, or legal documents primarily at that stage and contracts uh, like they were unaccompanied baggage. And they would, um, and the courier would wait in the baggage halls at Heathrow uh, for their bags to come around the carousel along with all the suitcases. And uh, and as Heathrow was growing, um, it decided actually we don't really like all of these horrible grubby couriers interfering with our passengers luggage so uh, they got the courier companies together and they said to them here's a license a perpetual license to operate at Heathrow here's the approvals you need here's the commitment from Heathrow that we'll always provide you with a facility but get out get out of our baggage halls and go and form yourself a company so sort of in the early 1980s uh, CFO was created as a as an entity that allowed couriers to continue to access kind of unaccompanied baggage services from airlines uh, so it's a particular kind of high-speed express uh, cargo product mm-hmm. that we handle uh, predominantly on on passenger airlines uh, and uh, we offer a kind of uh, a service that's not matched by any of the bigger cargo sheds so you can drop off like you're a passenger sort of 90 minutes before the flight departs you can be dropping bags off to us and you can collect kind of within 60 minutes of, of wheels down wow. as well so it's it's a uh, yeah we're with a sort of very small niche player um and uh so our background is you know we're 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 sort of self-funding we're run on not-for-profit grounds so um we have shareholders but they're not able to take a dividend Mm -hmm. and um predominantly for the last sort of most of the last 30 35 years that's been that's been fine you know we've provided a a really vital link to the airport and, and to the courier community 
And then over the last sort of 10 or 15 years, the this sort of side of the logistics thing has changed quite a lot. So the integrators in particular have become um, you know, much more significant players in this space. And uh, so as a business, we've kind of, uh, I, I took over about five or six years ago. Um, and we were at, the, at that point where we had a lot of very manual processes, uh, a lot of business practice that was kind of maybe 35 years old in, in conception. Mm-hmm. So there was a kind of a large uh, program of, of modernization that we needed to undertake that included um, moving last year into a new building um, on the airport and uh, spending sort of a million pounds on new equipment. So we now have kind of state-of-the-art um, sorting equipment and uh, state-of-the-art security screening material. And, um, and and we're now at the point where we're making quite significant investments in new IT and sort of widening our, our products and services range so that we continue to add value to the industry and can provide customers with much more information about, um, you know, what's happening with their bags as they move through our facility and through the airlines networks that they do business with mm-hmm. and um, and sort of improving our, the physical aspects of our service and, and interface for, uh, for their drivers when they drop off and that kind of thing. So we're sort of, I guess, partway through a very significant modernization program as an organization. So, um, that, that's sort of our direction of travel um, in the short term. And, and we work with uh, nearly 40 airlines at the moment at Heathrow. So we're, we're, we're kind of, although we only handle something like 1% of the total cargo at Heathrow, um, it's, uh, we have quite a significant reach, which is afforded to us because we're kind of representative of our own customers. So. Mm-hmm. And so coming out of, of COVID over the last couple of years, what, what kind of challenges are you up against now as a leader of that kind of organisation in the sector you're operating? Well, aviation has been, a, has been a pretty ugly place to be for the last mm-hmm. couple of years. Um, mm-hmm. And... Uh, uh, so that's been very difficult, and um, and although uh, kind of cargo and aviation has become a, a more important mix because because passengers simply couldn't fly, mm-hmm. um, the reality is a lot of a lot of our customers utilised a uh, belly hold space in in passenger air, aircraft, and um, because they're moving bags that look and feel a bit like suitcases, you know, that it can't be any heavier than 32 kilos and they've got to be the sort of broadly the same dimensions. They would fit very well into the configuration of passenger air, aircraft. So the rates for line haul, the cost of, of the cargo space were very competitive, which meant that we had customers who could compete with, you know, the likes of FedEx and DHL into the US on price and service. Um, uh, and from a, um, with all of the, the kind of COVID impacts on the aviation side of things, obviously all of that capacity just disappeared, mm-hmm. you know, uh, overnight. So, you know, we, in, in sort of March or April um, 2020, in the space of three days, we lost 90% of our volume. Wow. Uh, and because we're, we're owned by our customers, we're a low margin business because mm-hmm. we don't have anything to do with our, with our profits except kind of reinvest it back into the business. So that put us into a, into a, a pretty ugly financial situation. And that, obviously that was kind of echoed through the community of, of couriers that we represent and do business with. Yeah. Um, and as kind of aviation is starting to, to put itself back together and those flights are going back, what we're seeing is that actually a lot of those cargo flights are being turned back into kind of passenger 
flights, which is on the face of it good, and there's more of them. Mm-hmm. But um, if you have a cargo-only flight and then you take away two-thirds of the space to put people back in it with their suitcases, you actually reduce the amount of available space for your, for your cargo. So the, the yields, the price of of uh, flying material on, on commercial airlines as a, as a courier is, is four or five times what it was in, in early 2020 or 2019. Um, and, and that cost is, is making it very difficult for our customers to return um, kind of into that market space. And because it's been going on for a couple of years, you know, a lot of customers have, have you know, built different supply chains with different, you know, where their customers are using different methods or just not shipping in the same way. Um, and then you've kind of got all of the fun of Brexit and, yeah. uh, you know, and then the, the kind of uh, everything else. So there, there's, it's been, um, it's been a, a really, uh, it's been a very challenging kind of business. And in the middle of that, we also moved. So we, we spent yeah. nearly two million pounds in, in relocating, um, which came out of our came out of our reserves, and we um, we also uh, took a view that we weren't going to, you know, we weren't going to pass on all of the the costs to our customers, so that we could provide them with uh, some pricing certainty, um, bearing in mind that there was a lot of pressure that, that they were feeling from from different places. So um, we had to make some quite difficult decisions. We we had a, um, you know, I guess, kind of nine or ten months where. Uh, where the, the business environment was particularly difficult in, in 2020. And um, we had to make some sacrifices uh, to, to see ourselves into 21. Um, and at the moment, we are kind of at that stage where we're still yeah, somewhere around two-thirds of our volume from, from 2019. Okay. Um, we can see, you know, some opportunities to, to recover that. We're working you know, quite 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 closely with a number of our kind of key customers, number of our key airlines to develop some of those ideas. We've um, we've invested some some money in exploring you know sort of uh, new services and increasing the ease at which customers can do business with us and do business with airlines um, and get access to that kind of aviation uh, capability. But uh, the biggest barrier today is is just the cost of, of doing business in that space is is yeah. very high, um, and I think it will be for the rest of this year. Mm-hmm. But I'm hopeful that that as sort of aviation normalises over the next twelve months or so, then we'll see uh, some normal pricing return in that space, and and yeah. we we should be reasonably well placed to take advantage of of that by offering you know a, um, a pretty good um, proposition to to uh, career customers. Yeah, uh, to absolutely. do business with so it's been good the only uh, kind of the other side i guess the, the the good side is that it has allowed me to uh, to pick up some really good people so um you know some uh because we're customer owned my board is made up of a mixture of, of paid independent neds and uh shareholder representatives okay. um so uh, as those you know um some of those shareholder representatives have Businesses like Virgin and FedEx um, have been quite senior people who have taken, you know, action to maybe leave the businesses over the last couple of years through redundancy or early retirement. Um, and then uh, we've been able to continue working with them at CFL on kind of part-time basis. So it's it's made a big difference in terms of some of the expertise because we're only a very small business. You know, we're a 50, 50 person yeah. uh, a business. And um, so for us to kind of be able to tap into some, into some really um, – really smart people has been has been a, a benefit um, for sure 
but the trading environment is pretty tough. Yeah, but it's coming back there slowly. You said. Yeah, I, th- I, we, I think so, and and you know we have a we have a, a deep reservoir of, of positive customer sentiment. You know, there, there, there's a definite feeling that that um, because because of uh, you know there's a, a lot of affection for CFL. Um, if I'm honest, some of it may not have been deserved uh, until a few years ago, but um, but. Where we, uh, particularly the investment we've made, you know, a lot of our customers are, are seeing real significant benefits from from the new equipment that we've put in for their driver interface, and um, so uh, yeah, we we have lots of customers who aren't doing as much business as they used to, but would like to do more and, and that kind of thing. So there are reasons to be cheerful, um, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. And in terms of your own journey then, can you tell us a bit about your journey into leadership? So how did it happen? Was it always the plan? Was it quite organic? Uh, it was uh, very accidental, I would say. So um, so I uh, dropped out of university um, to go to America for a few months um, to, uh, you know, meet girls and do sensible things like that. And um, uh, and when I came back, I, my sister, well, both of my sisters actually were, were living in London. My, um, and my older sister suggested I should come down to London and, and uh, get off my ass and get a job, basically. So, um, so I followed her down to London where I thought the streets would be paved with gold. And um, and I was you know 21 and brash and, and relatively arrogant and thought to myself I will just apply for jobs that pay me you know money that I think is is you know befitting so very naively I would apply for a variety of a door to door sales jobs that you know had on target earnings of around 75 or 80 thousand pounds because I thought to myself you know well I could do that you know how could it be and the answer to that question is actually very hard and yes. most of those are not very sensible jobs so i went through a procession of quite inappropriate you know poor quality jobs kind of funding myself doing bar work and my um younger sister was working for a recruitment firm and she she got me an interview with uh, parcel force worldwide in their in their sales office so i went along for that job and 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 got that job and that was great and uh I was doing customer account management and dealing with kind of a dozen key customers, all very simple stuff, you know, very, very poorly paid, but, but adequate. And um, I went for an appraisal sort of six or eight months into the job with my boss, uh, Donna. And Donna said to me, you know, you're, you're reaching the point now where you need to kind of do something more. Um, but, you know, we really like you, but you're not a salesperson. You know, so I don't think you should stay in sales, but um, Charlton Depot are recruiting, you know, they're looking for an acting ops manager. I think you'd be really good in, in ops and in management. So why don't you go and get that job and do that? You know, they'll pay you way more money than you're earning at the moment. Um, and if you're any good, then that's great. And if you're not, then you can come back. You know, we'll always have you back kind of thing. So I went off to that. And um, that was an interesting experience for a 21-year-old um, who talks the way I did. Going into, into a Charlton Depot was quite an interesting uh, – it was quite a character-building one. But we got on well enough for them to offer me the job. So I, I started working um, – I started working there and did that job for about a year or so and then started thinking I needed to do something else. And um, – and I was sort of looking for jobs, and there was a, a job at FedEx, and uh, and I applied for that after the after their cut off, and um, uh, this uh, they wrote wrote back to me and said, look, we're 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 
got the last sort of assessment day tomorrow. Why don't you come along to that? Um, your CV looks great. Um, and we'll we'll go from there. So I went to this assessment day and uh, and that went very well. Um, and they said to me, we haven't got any application forms, but don't worry, we'll 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 get you to fill one if you if you come back for a second interview. They invited me for a second interview. I went to the second interview. They didn't have any application forms there, but they offered me the job kind of an hour later. And, uh, and I thought this is this is this is great. And um, I went home to my to my wife. I was very married, very young, and uh, you know she was very pregnant. And I went and told uh, you know first parcel force that I didn't want to work for them anymore, and handed in my notice. And I might not have handled that with as much grace as I might do these days. And um, okay. and then uh, the job came through. The, the job documents came through from FedEx with the official. Um, kind of offer letter and everything else and that was fine and then there was an application included and on there was a, a job profile with all the things you needed to have for the job and one of them was was a driving license i had a big wow. tick in it so I, I phoned up the recruiting manager my prospective boss and i said uh, yvonne i'm just looking at this and it says you know can i have a driving license and she was like yeah and i said i don't have one and uh and she said, okay, uh, let me speak to HR. And she rang HR and then she rang me back and said, you've got to have one. So uh, you've got four weeks. <laughs> so <laughs> I had to learn how to drive in four weeks. And, um, and I didn't succeed. And I failed twice, my, my test twice. So I had this kind of very sketchy three months before starting at, at, at FedEx oh. Express. And then um, they, they eventually agreed that they would start me on six months trial as long as i passed my driving test in that time which had, was adequate enough to relieve the pressure on my young shoulders and okay. uh, and i started at fedex and i had uh, eight good years at fedex and um and then i applied to be a senior manager at the stage i did a variety of different jobs as a, as a, a sort of frontline ops management role and i thought to myself i'm um, I'm a smart guy, you know. I can do more than this, so I'll I'll go and become a senior manager. And uh, and I went for an interview, and the interview didn't go very well. And they didn't offer me the job, and um, and at the same time, some uh, some headhunters had been in touch about uh, going to work for G4S, which I did a bit of research on, and I thought this seems like an awful company to work for. Um, but I, but you know, FedEx have had their chance, so. I think I'll go to G4S for a couple of years and then I'll, I'll get a bit more experience doing a higher level job and then I'll come back to FedEx, which is, I've really enjoyed working with FedEx. I'll come back to FedEx and I'll be able to demand uh, a bit more money as an external candidate and, uh, you know, and, um, and they'll, and they'll be sorry they hadn't promoted me in the first place. This was, uh -huh. this was my thinking. So I went off to, to G4S, um, took that job and I, and I left, uh, FedEx and, I started G4S and I had this incredible experience that I'd never had before. Um, and what I discovered is that in my time at FedEx, I had been really good at, um, I mean, really good at learning how systems worked. Yeah. And I was, you know, very interested in the kind of technology and IT and all of that kind of stuff. So I was the guy in the room who generally knew more than anybody else did about whatever it was that we were talking about. You know, I was very good at maths and stats and all of those sorts of things. So in a big, big organization like FedEx where, you know, people are talking about, you know, information, data and server, I could be, I was very smart. So um, I could be this, this arrogant little so-and-so in that, in that situation and a bit smug 
and uh, and know that I probably knew more than anyone else did in that room about whatever it was that we were talking about. And then when I went to a big organization like G4S, I realized I didn't have any of the people skills to be in a leadership role very, very rapidly when I just went around being arrogant and rude to everybody and they didn't warm to me. And, um, and so I had six really painful months in, in G4S kind of just crashing and burning at every single, <laughs> every single opportunity uh, and then leaving, you know, just deciding I can't do this anymore and, um, and sort of walking away uh, just as the recession hit in 2008 yep. to then go and try and find myself a, a, another job and also kind of pick up my very bruised ego. And um, I found myself back at, back at, at, FedEx, but at FedEx UK, they just completed the acquisition of, of ANC at this point, running a, a domestic depot in Nottingham, which was 200 miles away from where I lived, uh, and um, and going into an environment where uh, they didn't really want me to be on site because um, the previous incumbent, it was a, a franchise and the previous incumbent had left, and, and the ops manager who now was working for me had been promised the job and then didn't get it, and uh, so there was a general hostility to this spiky haired 20 something who turned up from FedEx Express, you know, and, um, and of course I'd had this, this really burnt experience of going into, into G4S and, and not knowing anything, but, but behaving like I knew everything. And, and so instead I went into this, into, into the FedEx UK situation with a completely different, much humbler attitude and um and discovered actually i really enjoyed working with people and people who knew more than i did and actually if you if you work with people who know more than you that you can get so much more done um and it was that was kind of the 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 moment where a lot of light bulbs went on for me from a from a leadership perspective and um and i now actively um I, I have a real fear of being the smartest person in any room I'm in kind yeah. of, um, you know, that all kind of adage about being in the wrong room is, is, is entirely true. And, um, and that was the beginning. I, I went through a, a number of roles in FedEx UK and then, um, in, then I finally got the senior management job I really wanted in FedEx Express. Um, and now I find myself here. So that was, you know, that was, that was that journey. And, oh, um, okay. It, it is quite a journey, and I mean, it, it, it's you know there are, there are a huge amount of of uh, lessons, and I mean, I really needed I really needed that kick in the ass um, from from the the G four S experience because I think um, I had a you know I had that very kind of mid twenties arrogant bloke yeah. uh, status that was you know it was great while it lasted, but um, <laughs> you're not the first, you won't be the last. <laughs> <laughs> no i i know I, I yeah that's that is sadly true you know and um i mean i'm, I'm very fortunate uh you know my partner is um is very good at keeping me on my on my uh, you know feet on the ground and um and i i you know i i was an outsider for this job when i when i applied for it, a big outsider and i put a lot of work into into the uh into the interview and and, and that kind of stuff and um and when i got the job i was understandably quite quite you know puffed up about it and quite pleased with it and um and then claire said to me just just so you know i know that md in your instance really stands for mega douche (laughs) well she sounds everyone 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 else might think it means something else but you know i know and you know you know that's not the case so yeah i think everybody has to well most people have to go through that process of 
eating a little bit of humble pie early in their career. If, if you're driven and you're passionate and you want to get on, sometimes that passion can overflow and you can sort of tiptoe across a line. So, Or step across it, you know, yeah. leaping, leaping and bounding, absolutely. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, I agree. And I think, um, I think actually it, it's how you deal with uh, the setbacks that defines, you know, it's really easy to be successful when everything goes your way. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and you know, there's an enormous amount of um, luck involved in anything, you know, a great deal of, of success is in my, you know, a lot, you know, there's a lot of hard work and, and, and knowing things and, and knowing the right people and approaching things in the right way is important, but mm-hmm. actually there's an enormous amount of luck in, in any individual outcome. Yeah. And that means that things are, you know, just as likely to go wrong as they are to go well, and it's um, it's having that resilience to be able to to deal with that that, that um, I think is a really important characteristic in in sort of any any role really, but particularly in a, in a leadership role. Yeah, and so so in terms of your journey into leadership, then is that in part was the catalyst Donna recognizing something in you that wasn't sales or? <sighs> um, I think I think so. Really, I just um, I, I stumbled into into uh, logistics. Um, really, um, I think I went I went along with what Donna said because um, it was going to be more money, really, and I hadn't really thought about it at that point. Yeah. And then I think um, I just enjoyed I enjoyed the responsibility, um, and I enjoyed. Um, I enjoyed that sense of, uh, I guess, a little bit of the, the, the power and the influence that comes with those things were quite fun. But I also, um, I also enjoyed uh, just that kind of creating an environment. I think is you know having an influence, but kind of creating an environment where where people can enjoy themselves or thrive or you know ideally do both of those things yeah. was was quite fun. And and you know I mean I was um, you know sometimes you play games and you kind of wonder what your superpower is you know one of my superpowers is that i tend to see uh everything differently from everybody else so i'm the guy who stands when everyone else sits and all of that kind of stuff so for for me in many respects kind of very structured logistics businesses are a, are a problem because they're very dull and everyone does everything in in one particular way but when you're in a leadership role it allows you to be much more creative with how you approach you know the people in that situation and, and how you you know how you foster um you know their success and, and those kind of things and that part i find really you know that really um i find very rewarding and um and i, and I think i just enjoy you know I, I enjoy the buck stopping with me you know ultimately that's quite a nice you know it, it you know it's dangerous and sometimes you drop things but um but that's part of the fun i think uh-huh. okay and and so in terms of being a, a strong leader, being a great leader, how would you define a great leader? I know it's, it's situation by situation, but from your perspective. Well, do you know, I think that's a really difficult um, question to answer because mm-hmm. um, I don't think anybody's – I don't think there are any perfect leaders. And um, uh, I, can, I can remember um, you kind of – one of those kind of – awful uh, sort of training sessions that you do in, in big corporates with your peers and someone will say, you know, tell me a leader you really admire. And I'll never forget being in one of those sessions and um, 
you know, people went through the usual, you know, Nelson Mandela and blah blah yeah. blah, and you get all that kind of stuff. And then at the at the end, there was um, there was uh, a woman called Terry, who's, who's now very senior in in FedEx Express, and she said, "I don't, you know, I don't really have anybody that that, that I hold up to in in that regard, because because everybody's everybody's human, everyone's got flaws." Mm-hmm. You know, so she's, you know, yes, she said, you know, you take Nelson Mandela, you know, he was, you know, he was absolutely a fantastic politician for South Africa, yeah. but he was a terrible dad, you know, yeah. he was a terrible husband, you know, like it's like actually what, so, so when you look at those things, and I, and I just find that, I find that perspective really quite refreshing actually, because, um, you know, we're all people, so we all have, you know, we all have um, good moments and we all have, uh, we all have our weaknesses, and I think in in leadership, actually, the things that that define for me are perhaps greater leaders are ones who are aware of the limits of the things that they know. Okay. So they're aware of they're aware of the things that they don't know, and um, and they they seek the information that they need to have to make that space of things that they don't know as small as possible, whether that's, whether that's, you know, from a, you know, a business perspective, do I know everything I need to know about how my business is performing to, you know, in a one-to-one situation with an individual, do I know everything I need to know about how to motivate this person or how to, you know, do I know how his frame of mind is or her frame of mind are in any of those situations? Um, That to me is really important because at the kernel of that is that, Making a space where it's uh, where people are comfortable speaking truth to power, mm-hmm. you know. So, you know, if you take uh, a very topical um, situation at the moment, for example, one wonders whether, if you're a general in the Russian army, you would have enough courage and feel safe mentioning to the current Russian president that perhaps things weren't going as well as we had anticipated in in you know in the in Ukraine like maybe just and and actually that's a really important bit of information because uh-huh. um and and in a very small sense I think in 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 leadership roles it's really important people feel comfortable being able to you know ask awkward questions point out flaws in plans um you know bring things to your attention that that you know, maybe I don't want to hear, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, that basically say my baby might be a bit ugly. That kind of thing is a really, that's a very important um, part of of, uh, of any leadership role, I think. And that, and that comes from being driven by making sure you have as much information and all of the relevant information. And then you, you build, you know, structures or processes or spaces where you can get that information. But you're always asking yourself, you know, what what don't I know in this? Yeah, yeah. Um, I it's about creating this psychological safety that people can tell you what you need to know instead of what you probably want to hear. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. It is. It is exactly that. And you know, and, and what I find quite interesting is is um, is how you know that's actually a two way thing like it's not just a one size Mm -hmm. you know fits all kind of scenario and um you know so for me um uh one of my you know like i am um i really don't mind what people think of me at any moment in time so i don't have a i don't have the same reflex i know lots of other people have where you know if somebody says something that could be perceived to be an uncomfortable truth people feel uncomfortable i said i'm i'm you know i'm just interested in in what people have to say or or you know or not interested in what they have to say you know depending on i guess what they've said and how relevant i feel it is and um so for me it's uh, like uh, there is no 
there's no awkward space. There's no psychological risk associated because if somebody says something and I think that's, that's rubbish, um, it's okay. Right. It, like it's, it, there's, there's not that sensitivity. Um, but of course on the, the other person might be quite, you know, might not feel quite so comfortable mm-hmm. anyway, you know, even though there's, you know, even though the consequences are very small for a whole host of reasons. And it's, it's particularly interesting right now in, in, in the business of CFL where I've got um, a senior management team of very experienced people, many of whom have had very senior roles in big businesses that mm-hmm. have joined recently um, because they're at a different point in their career. So, you know, they're not, they're not seeking my approval. You know, they don't want to be perceived as anything. They don't want my job. They're, they're here because they choose to be and they're interested in the project and they're interested in the business. Yeah. And therefore, they're very comfortable telling me that, you know, finding out when things don't smell quite like roses, you know, yes. they're quite comfortable doing that. And, and everyone's on the same page. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've got a couple of other members of the team who are a bit younger and who have worked with me for longer and who have told me privately that they totally understand that they know they can say anything they want to and there's you know they've worked for me long enough to know there's no consequences but they still find that difficult and it's that sort of it's that sense that you know the team makeup changes the people you're dealing with change you know, creating a space that's that's safe is you know it's, it's a constant two-way street and yeah. it's not a it's definitely not a you know it's not something you can do sort of just on your own and you do it once and it's nailed no no agreed and and so where does that style of leadership come from then is that off the back of an experience that you've had in the past or a piece of advice someone shared with you where did that come so a lot of it's come from my own bitter experience so um so going into uh g4s um as an arrogant you know know it all didn't didn't work you know, and uh, and it didn't just work because I knew the wrong stuff. It just didn't work because you know it wasn't much fun. And I think the more and more, um, you know, the more and more um, I've, I've kind of spent time in, in leadership roles thinking about um, how do I want to lead and, and what's the environment I want to create and what's the outcomes. And I'm very motivated by you know by by bringing big change and and having lots of influence. And you know, I'm, I'm it's part of why. CFL now is is an interesting challenge because we're in a big modernization program and 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 so there's the opportunity to, to uh, you know to do some things uh, that are you know, a bit more spectacular than just the day to day and I think for me that w- what that then wants is I want to have people who feel the same sense of excitement enjoyment fun at work and and I'm you know I'm quite laid back in many respects but I'm also very driven in others and I want to have an environment where you know people want to come to work where they where they feel challenged um, but where they also feel uh, like it's a it's a place which is you know rewarding and and actually quite happy you know and uh, I read a book um, I read a book uh, oh, maybe 10 years ago maybe 15 years ago I'm getting so old it's hard to it's hard to tell maybe 18 months ago, probably 18 months ago, when I was in my early 20s, you know. It's a years ago. Yeah, they have. Um, but that was, it's written by a guy called uh, uh, Sean Aker, mm. who um, uh, was part of the original sort of teaching happiness team at, um, at Harvard University. Okay. And uh, it's called The Happiness Advantage. And um, there was a, another guy whose name eludes me who wrote a book called Happiness, which was published about the same time, which was very 
very famous, and he was the professor who who founded this this happiness course at Harvard. And um, and the the happiness advantage uh, essentially kind of purports to say that that um, we we educate ourselves today to say that if we are successful in whatever it is we're setting out to do, then we will be happy. Right? And actually, what what the science of positive psychology says is that if you're happy you will be successful mm-hmm. you know it's, it's that way around and um and i saw a ted talk of his uh, which was kind of my gateway drug into this into this space and the ted talk made me laugh but it also struck you know struck a nerve for me and i thought this is exactly how i feel life should be mm-hmm. so um so for me I, I then read the book and i've i've read you know, several other books in sort of similar emphasis on on these things because I think actually as a leader of of people I have a responsibility not just for the outcome of a business and you know all those kind of service oriented things but to create a to create a space where people can be you know the better versions of themselves and yeah, um, actually happy and if you start from the basis that making people happy makes them more productive makes them more successful makes them more inclined to stay you know and all of those things then it it makes it okay to do to do fun things and yeah. um and so and to create a more kind of collaborative working environment rather than than the more traditional you know his hit some targets go out and yeah. go out and get them and, and you know and then and then we'll you know then we'll be happy and of course what you do is you're like yeah you've got those targets let's let's go give you some let's go give you another target you know yes. and another target and it just you know just defers it so so i think a, a kind of combination of, of my own bad choices and then um and then uh kind of reading about you know other ways of approaching some of the psychological aspects of Mm-hmm. of leadership and you know and i just want to have you know i want to be a happy guy i want to be surrounded by happy people you know yeah. that's way more fun than, than you know than being surrounded by stressed miserable people who you know who are just kind of praying for 5 p.m to arrive as quickly as possible so yeah. couldn't agree more couldn't agree more <laughs> and and so advice i think in part i guess you've answered this already but in terms of advice that you'd offer to someone that was looking to follow in your footsteps and going into a leadership role maybe for the first time what advice would you offer to them at the minute? Um, so I think I think the uh, the key advice I would say um, it does come back to that knowing what you don't know is is I think a really important sort of fundamental in terms of in terms of getting the best out of a of a situation you know understanding uh, creating a space where you can get the information that you need to to know and to fill those blanks in is 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 a really important part. But I also think um, You've got to have, you know, there's some real basic entry things. And you you used the word passion earlier. I think, you know, for me, you know, having some passion, having some energy, believing, you know, in something is is a really important part of leadership because you're, you know, leadership is a, you know, most leadership roles are assigned by, you know, rank and authority and, you know, these days by hundreds of bureaucratic documents that define precisely what you're responsible for and all of those things. But, you know, those things don't really make leaders. You know, they just assign somebody an opportunity. And, you know, leaders are people who um, who are able to get people following them motivated to do the things you want them to do and 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 a lot of that comes from creating spaces where 
where those people who you want to lead feel proud to be part of the journey that you're taking them on and that kind of stuff. So I think it's, it's, you know, having some, having some energy and some passion is really important and not losing sight of, you know, what do you need to know, but also have some fun, you know, like, in, like, enjoy it, you know, like, like it's, you know, life is, life is really short actually. So, you know, kind of trying to create a, a, a happy space while doing something important is I think it really is a really good thing. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. And I suppose it's twofold as well, isn't it? Because if you look at the services that you provide and the problems that you solve for your clients, you're making them happy in the same way that you're hopefully. I like to think so. Yeah. I mean, I've probably got a few customers who would, who would say we're not quite there yet. We're working on it. Yeah. Absolutely. And so you mentioned previously, you mentioned the Mandela's and you mentioned that previously you'd been asked about leaders that you particularly admire. And it's difficult to, to pinpoint because nobody's perfect. Perfect, but are there leaders that have shaped your thinking, or leaders that you've noticed, identified with? So um, I quite like. Uh, so I think I think people like Shola, um, uh, Sean Aker have have definitely shaped my thinking, um, and um, uh, and I quite like. Uh, so I, I I enjoy kind of immersing myself in a few ideas. So um, you know, kind of understanding that and thinking about reflecting upon. You know myself, live context, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, is quite interesting. Um, really boring for everybody else, so I won't. I won't go into too much detail. But I find myself fascinating. That's basically <laughs> what I'm saying, Amy. Um, which is good. Someone has to. Uh, but I think, um, in terms of you know, in terms of sort of looking at at, uh, at leaders, I, I, it's a weird. It is a weird thing because I, I I think it's really difficult to um, you know to look with hindsight when there's so much information now because quite often you know if you if you were to go back maybe eight ten years you would identify dave brailsford as a as a great leader you know Mm -hmm. transformed british cycling you look at dave brailsford's time now and you think that's maybe a little bit more tainted you know because there's a lot of information in the domain about some of the culture that was created as a consequence maybe some of the you know you just so i think it's very for me it, I'm, I'm quite suspicious of that so but it's much easier to look at like today and say well there is a guy i really admire who's, who's in a leadership role and that's you know volodymyr Zelensky, right because you know he's you know the very definition of mm-hmm. of kind of situational leadership and and um and the and the way he has conducted himself i think is a genuinely ex- inspiring Mm-hmm. you know example under i mean extreme circumstance but you know he's displaying lots of really wonderful you know yeah. you know leadership traits he's very brave he's bringing a lot of energy you know he's he's engaging he's you know he's kind of building hope really in in, in what would otherwise be a, a very bleak situation and mm-hmm. in many respects what we're watching i think is is the development of ukrainian identity in a very real way you know he's he's essentially built a nation you know that was was effectively under under threat in a way that will will last for you know for for generations and 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 he's been at the heart of that so i could say that today yeah you know i think um i think he's the don in 10 years we'll probably discover he's you know does some terrible things in his private life and That's persona non grata, right? <laughs> I mean, he used to, you know, he used to be a comedian. I mean, there's a lot of things to like about him. I think it's just the guy, anyway. But it's, you know, I just think it's just, you know, that that's the danger with 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 those sorts of individuals. And 
Um, and in a funny sort of way, uh, I, I lost my my father a couple of years ago, um, and and that was um, and that was quite an interesting uh, kind of experience because I recognised then that of all the people I've known, he's probably the guy I would get closest to describing as as, as a hero because he was, um, you know, he was he was he was very much a kind of one off individual. He was, you know, he was. Um, entirely predictable in terms of you know like he wasn't there was no kind of um no ambiguity about you know how he was likely to behave mm-hmm. and um i remember going to his funeral and um he, he, my parents live in france and had done for the last 20 odd years and mm-hmm. uh and this 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 welsh chap came up to to see me and i'd not met him before mark and he said you know i, I you know your dad was really good to us when we I was going to do the Welsh accent, but I won't do that now. <laughs> yeah, um, don't do that. Don't do that. You know, offend your Welsh listeners. Um, but, you know, it's like you know, when we moved over, your dad was great. You know, he really helped us build out the paperwork. And, you know, we didn't really know what we were doing. And he was, you know, he was really, you know, he, was, he was absolutely fantastic. And I really liked him. You know, he was a really gentle, gentle guy, he said. And then, and then they, you know, your mum and dad invited us around for, for dinner. And your dad had a glass of wine. And he put his hand on my shoulder and he went, Matthew... I love that man because <laughs> he would become, you know, this raconteur of, you know, and, and sober dad was this kind of really very shy, very diligent, you know, really polite. And then, you know, slightly uh, wine infused dad was this kind of really spectacularly entertaining and, you know, witty guy who had lived this amazing life. You know, he lived you know, in the Middle East for a long period of time and traveled and all these sorts of, and all these stories would just sort of tumble forth. And, and so I think for me that, you know, when you know somebody that well, you can nail those colors and say, yeah, you know, yeah. and I, I think I'm with, I'm with, with Terry in the sense that everybody else is probably a little bit too compromised. And it comes back to that kind of, you've got to be aware of what you don't know. Right. I think yes. so, you know, <laughs> so you've got to, you're going to, going to admire and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, but also I think to a, to a certain extent, uh, and this is just, you know, this is just part of my black sheep nature, the idea of following in someone's footsteps really is abhorrent to me. You know, I cut my, I, I swim with my own, you know, I don't, I don't run with the flock. I'm a, you know, I'm out there on the own, you know, cut my own field as it were. So. Yeah. I think, I think that the, I don't know if best is the right word, but maybe the most successful leaders are those that, have an awareness of the individuals that are out there and the successes that people have had and you take a little bit from everybody and then you shape your own you shape your own path don't you i think yeah i think so and and, and that's i think is is a much more accurate way of describing my you know so i have a, a, a natural magpie personality anyway but you know i have i've worked with people and you know some of them hand on heart i would say are not have not been great managers but they've had things that I found useful and you know, I've taken from them. So, you know, the best advice I ever had for about an interview, which was about, um, you know, preparing stories so that you're, so you learn what you want to say and you, yeah. and you, and you practice it so that when you, when you tell it, you're telling someone a story because they said to me, if you, when people ask me an interview question, they're expecting you to answer it. If you tell them a story that's interesting, they'll remember you told them an interesting story, even if you didn't answer the question they asked. (laughs) 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 And he's absolutely right. But, you know, he's, you know, as a, 
as an overall, you know, manager, I found him really frustrating to work for because he was he was awful at loads of. But that, you know, that piece of advice was was transformative for, yeah. for interviews for me because it, it made it much easier to understand how do you, you know, how do I how do you articulate and, and make sure you get across the part the view that you want to and that kind of stuff. And and so I've, I've definitely done that throughout my career. I've, I've, you know, I've kind of stolen the things um, that I've, that I've admired and, and, yeah. and want to see. Um, but I also think um, like you have to just take responsibility for the space you find yourself in at any moment as well. And, and mm-hmm. particularly again, particularly in, in, in any kind of leadership role, but, but I think at any moment in life, if you touch something and you're responsible, you make yourself responsible for it, then you can influence its outcome. And that and that's a very powerful position to be in, however, however difficult that might be in that moment. If you if you feel like you have a responsibility for it, then you have options and you can you can do something about it. Whereas if you don't, then it's it's very yeah. difficult to engage in that way. So Yeah. Fair point. That's a good point. And in terms of so you mentioned earlier the books that you'd read about the happiness, the Harvard study. Over and above that, is there anything else that you would recommend? I'm always genuinely interested in what leaders are. So you, you, I, I think you asked me in your free room. What am I reading now? So I'm, I'm reading. Well, I'm I'm reading one book, as in reading it, and uh, I spend a lot of time in the car. I live, I live a long way from Heathrow, so uh, so I I, um, I indulge a lot of audible kind of uh, uh, audio books. So I'm I'm listening to one called uh, The Comfort Crisis at the moment, which is okay. really all about. Um, kind of the benefits to putting yourself into into physically you know difficult not impossible but physically difficult things and pushing your body to to its limits to kind of offset the fact that we have detached ourselves from you know a kind of the, the evolutionary version of ourselves which was hunter gatherer and mm-hmm. we're supposed to be able to deal with quite extreme extreme scenarios um and that's quite interesting it's kind of built on a, on a japanese idea of misogi which is this sort of idea that you do an event that you know um, is is an endurance challenge of of one form or another, um, and you're you know you have maybe a fifty fifty chance of of completing it, um, and a low risk of death is an important uh, an important part, uh, and I you know yeah so I so I'm I'm finding that I'm finding that quite uh, quite interesting because it's. Um, yeah, it's interesting concepts, um, and I, but I'm reading a, a book called Overstory at the moment, which was a, a Booker Prize winner from a couple of years ago. Which is, um, I can't I think it's the top of my head who the author is, but but it's um, it's a really beautiful, it's a really beautiful novel actually about um, kind of people's lives and uh, and the way we intertwine with nature and um, and the kind of role of trees really in in terms of kind of mapping out time it's 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 i thoroughly recommend that if you're it's very beautifully written um but i was i was thinking in terms of kind of recommendations there are there are three books written by a guy called paul arden who was the creative director for such and such in the 1980s okay um and they were written really for for um for marketing professionals which by and large i don't really like uh, as a general rule, but um, they as uh, individuals, or as, a as individuals, as a, and a profession, I'm very much wow. the Bill Hicks view of marketeers. <laughs> you know, they should. You know, I've met, I've met one or two I like, I suppose, but you know, well, that, that doesn't change the general. The general Bill Hicks may well have been right by encouraging them to go and kill themselves. I think that's fine, but um, but uh, yeah, maybe maybe cut that and. Um, but uh, it, Paul Arden was—he um, wrote these books, of, and they were 
they were designed, two of them were designed really for, for marketing professionals. And one of them was just, I think, him, him showing off how smart he was. Uh, but um, but they had a really profound impact when I read them in my early 20s on my management, on myself, actually. And one of them is called, It's Not How Good You Are, It's How Good You Want To Be. And it's basically talks about um, how the perception of you, your perception of yourself, limits or or creates opportunity for you to okay. to grow so if you only see yourself as, as you know this this sort of simple thing then actually that's probably all you're going to be but if you yeah. see yourself as a you know as, as a as an md one day then maybe you will you know then you give yourself the opportunity to become yeah. that um and then it sort of talks about uh throughout the book it's really i mean it's it's a fantastic book it's 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 got some of the best visual sort of imagery every every page is very punchy and very very deliverable but it sort of kind of just goes through these lessons of life it talks about taking total responsibility talks about um you know if you work somewhere just take absolute total pride in where you work or stop yeah. working there you know yeah. and and he, and he tells a story about a guy he knows in new york who works for an ad agency who would physically fight anybody who was rude about a company he worked for and um, he's like that you I mean they might take it a little bit too far but you know it's kind of in the ballpark over what you want to do um and then he wrote a, a follow-up book called uh um whatever you think think the opposite which was about being bold enough to do the to do the things that that people tell you shouldn't do or the, or the roles you shouldn't do and the danger of mediocrity you know he talks about awards as being badges of mediocrity and how you know if you're gonna if you you know the more successful you are in a commercial sense it may just mean the more middle of the road you are because you're so incredibly dull everybody finds you palatable rather than rather than profound and it's better to be you know it's better to blaze away and have one you know stunning success and than it is to just you know boot along being being really dull yeah. um and uh, and has quite a lot of kind of advice around that and then the, the third book was god explained in a taxi ride which purports to explain god in about the time it takes to take a black cab <laughs> you know a short distance in london does a pretty good job of doing that so those those three books are you know i i probably keep faber press going uh you know printing those books ourselves because i hand them out to people all of the time because they're, yeah. they're really easily digestible and and quite a lot of fun so yeah i'll take a look yeah. thank you for that <laughs> and then so what's on the cards for the next six nine twelve months for for you guys at cfl so um at the moment we're uh we're sort of still bending in um uh, some of our new equipment and, and we're we're steaming ahead with some some it development so we're we're kind of focusing on uh on really um delivering some value for our customers with those new with those new developments mm -hmm. um we're we're bringing airlines you know on we're uh we're looking at sort of targeting some new new products so we're sort of focusing our efforts on making ourselves uh you know as good as we can be we've got a, a, a project um which we've called make Heathrow great um again i guess and uh so we're kind of um focusing our energy on on you know being very clear about defining what that means for the different populations that we serve and, and how we're going to how we're going to deliver on on those ideas a lot of it's around you know creating you know much more information for our customers to use about their service experience mm -hmm. making it much easier to connect the different constituents in the in the marketplace because if you can imagine if you're if you're a, a career that starts up today and you think to yourself you know i really want to ship some things to to america with some customers and they really want to use uh you know fedex because um you know they can't 
they can't offer the service those customers want. The barriers to entry to get beyond thinking about that are really quite quite complex because you've got you know you've got customs, you've got uh, the airline to think about you know before you even get to the handling company and, and those kind of things. So what we want to do is is make it really easy to provide. Um, our prospective customers and, and new entrants with access to all of those different services that are provided by um, by the ecosystem that we occupy, so that um, so that we can you know uh, sort of bring bring a new energy and I guess a new sort of customer into the marketplace, but also create a compelling value co- proposition for our existing customers because the airlines become more and more interested in, yeah. in what we're doing because we're, we're you know we're creating uh, volume and interest so you know so the, the the focus in the next sort of six months is very kind of let's just do what we do a bit better with better equipment share that information with customers and then the sort of the next 12 18 months is really around uh kind of realizing some of the more um ambitious elements of, of what it means and making it much easier for new new customers to do business with us um, and creating a much more sort of integrated um, ecosystem that uh, hopefully all of the different participants can thrive in. Fantastic. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, I've watched this space. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Matthew. It's been brilliant speaking with you. Thank you for sharing your insight. On Thank you, Emma. I, I appreciate you listening as we waffle on for, for an hour no, about all great. sorts of nonsense. So thank you.